Thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. Hey, I'm Alan. I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me? Thanks so much for asking me up here, Chris. Uh, so uh, I haven't done this in a while, so I don't know what's going to come out. But um, so when I'm in doubt, I start in the middle. I uh, I'm sober, uh, really, by the grace of God, since uh, Valentine's Day, 1992. Wow. And that's um, 31 years. It's my personal best. And, uh, and so what happened was, uh, my last drink, my last drink, I was, I was going to get a hot dog. I had just gotten out of treatment like a hundred days ago and I was going to get a hot dog. And I went to this place where I lived. I was in the union, New Jersey, a place called five points. It was a hot dog place. And I was going in to get a hot dog and I'm thinking, I want a hot dog. And I'm online, and there's a woman in front of me, and the guy says, what would you like? And she says, I'll take a hot dog and a beer. And he says, what do you want? And I said, I'll take a hot dog and a beer. Now, I want you to know, I promised that line, I'll have a hot dog a lot before I got up to that counter. But somehow, the words just came out. Even though I didn't think it was really a good idea, the words just came out. I'll have a hot dog and a beer. And for the next couple of weeks, I went through the torture that we go through and it's familiar to many of us. I don't remember much of it. I remember watching Jaws while drinking a bottle of Reuniti, but I don't remember much else of it. And uh, when I got out of treatment, I mean, I learned a lot in treatment, but I really held on to a lot of things. And one of them was the idea that I choose not to drink. I kept hearing that and it sounded good and I believed it. And uh, what I needed to learn was, was that for me to drink is to die and knowing that won't keep me from drinking. And that's a hopeless situation. And I really believe that these steps are crafted in such a way that when I finish a step, there's nowhere to go but the next step. You know, and, uh, and I still hear it today. Sometimes I hear someone say, I choose not to drink. And you know what? I mean, like, I mean, I had a hammer at home. I had to hammer it. I had to smash the idea. And I had to understand that the drink is to die. And if you were developing a new friendship with somebody and every day they said, every day I choose not to step in front of a bus, you'd probably say, I'm going to go find another friend. This one won't last. <laughs> so... It's very important that I understand the nature of my alcoholism. It's very, very important. So uh, I come from this industrial town, northern New Jersey. They made toy trains. They made a lot of stuff. 
and uh, had about a dozen bowling alleys. Nobody played golf. Three shifts. My father was a cop. Every male I knew was a cop. And uh, and my father, you know, I I was different. I, I just got to say, I was really different. I don't know why. For some reason, I just, from, from go, I wanted to do the unexpected. My mother's 95. She's we see her every day and she's telling the same story all the time because it impacted her so much. She was wheeling me in a baby carriage. I was two years old and I went up to the cashier. We went up to the cash. I was wheeled to the cashier. I was in diapers, but I spoke well. And, uh, the cashier said, Oh, isn't that a cute little baby boy? And I looked up at her and I said, you make me sick. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of like what I was like, you know? And uh, when I graduated from, uh, from kindergarten, I went into the first grade. That's the order we did it in. And uh, there, was, uh, there was like 20 of us in the graduating class of kindergarten. And they had our diplomas. And a couple of diplomas had fallen behind the piano, you know? And uh, myself and a couple other kids did not get our diplomas, but then they were, they were like getting ready to sing the song and I screamed out loud so the whole auditorium can hear me, where's mine? <laughs> and that's kind of was my mantra for many, many years. Where's mine? You know, and uh, you know, the, the gentleman sitting next to my mom says, oh, you're in for it. You know, cause that's, that's what it was like, you know? And I, I, I remember at a very young age, with my grandparents and my parents, my par they took me to some restaurant and I went into the, uh, I can read and write when I was like, I don't know, seven or eight, really well. And uh, I went into the bathroom and I'm reading all this stuff on the walls. <laughs> yeah, and I came out and I started quoting it all. And uh, some of it rhymed, I remember. And, uh, and my mother was like horrified. And my father was hysterical and he was almost crying, you know? And uh, my father, my father was really like my, my greatest fan. You know, he just, he just loved me. He just loved me unconditionally. And you know, my parents, they had the two kids and then I guess they practiced the rhythm method and they didn't have much rhythm. They had me like five years after the other two. And, uh, and it was, I was always like a little different. I was always just a little different, you know? My father always tried to scare me into being straight. I remember him tell, telling me that, uh, you know, you don't want to get a tattoo. If you get a tattoo, you know, I remember when, when I was in the Navy in the South Pacific, people would get tattoos and uh, there would be a guy there standing there with a knife so they can cut your arm off if it got infected while you were getting the tattoo. And I, and I believed it, you know, and, and then he said, oh, heroin, heroin, you know. You don't want to do heroin. It's, they take people in, they bring them into the bathroom and they shoot them up so that they become customers, you know? And, you know, just using fear. I just remember all this fear, you know? And uh, I think by the time I was 18, I had a tattoo. By the time I was 19, I was shooting heroin, you know? It turned out that, you know, they, they didn't need to recruit anybody. There were volunteers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, and... and, and stuff that he said didn't pan out for me and I didn't so I thought what else doesn't you know what else shouldn't I believe what else shouldn't I believe? fear does not work 
and nobody ever gets scared into being here. So, uh, you know, school for me was, uh, was really about avoiding work. And uh, when, they, when I finally did graduate from high school, they really gave me a diploma because they didn't want me to come back. Um, you know, I, I grew up in this kind of like rough area, but then they, uh, we moved to this nicer area. And uh, I had like one good friend. And uh, when I think back, I mean, he was, he was a very strange individual. But uh, he would lie and I would swear to it. You know, that's how, that's the kind of relationship we had. His name was Larry. And he and I were very, very close. He was my best man. I was his best man. But uh, school was not something that I felt good at. But I, I started working and I found something I was pretty good at. And I, I, I enjoyed that. One thing I was not good at, though, was driving. I just was not good at driving. You know, and I, I was also very obnoxious. I know it's hard to believe, but I was. <laughs> and uh, I remember there was this one place where uh, I would always turn left and it said no left turn, but I always turned left, you know. And I got pulled over by the police and, uh, and the cop said, I, I got to write you a ticket for no left turn. And I'm like, I always make a left there. And he says, I'm just going to give you a ticket for this time, you know. <laughs> and I remember thinking uh, I was on the wrong side of that exchange. You know, I was on the wrong side of that exchange. So, uh, you know, I kept, I kept my car, I, I was drinking and driving all the time. It was like a normal state for me to drink and to drive, you know, and, and even before I was old enough to drink, you know, going back when I was 12 years old, my, uh, my sister was 17. My brother-in-law was 17. You had to be eight, you had to be 21 to drive and to drink in New Jersey back then. They would go over to Staten Island where it was only 18 and they would take me, the 12 year old. And they found it very entertaining to watch me drink. And by the time I was 15, I would get on the bus by myself to New York City. There was a place there in Times Square called Playland and it was one stop shopping for fake ID. You had a picture booth, you had the laminator, you had the, they, you buy the fake ID over the counter and then you, uh, you know, and then you go out and you just run around all the bars, you know, 15, 16 years old, and uh, and and Times Square was crazy at the. T this is like early 70s. So um, I come about, I come upon this uh, disease honestly, you know, and uh, and I drove really, really poorly, and I continually found myself awoken by the sound of screeching metal. Anybody ever wake up in a car accident? Yeah, it's, it's scary. It's very scary. And it happened to me repeatedly. And uh, now my father, he was a cop, uh, but he was also a car dealer. He was a used car salesman. As a matter of fact, when he talked to you, he was either interrogating you or selling you. You know, but he was a cop and he was a car dealer. And he would always, he always bailed me out because my father just loved me, never stopped loving me. And he would just give me another car, give me another car. I mean, he wouldn't give me a new car. He gave me like a 66 Rambler with four bald tires, but he gave me something, you know, and uh, so I always had wheels. I always had wheels. But at some point in time, the state of New Jersey thought it wasn't a good idea for me to have a license. And so they, uh, they decided to take away my driver's license. So I, uh, I hit the road. It said, it said, your license is going to be revoked on this date. And so the day before that date, I went over to my sister's house. She lived in Yardley, Pennsylvania. 
And um, I, I, uh, I went to the motor vehicle here in Pennsylvania, turned in my driver's license from New Jersey the day before it was revoked. It said, is your license revoked in this or any other state? And I said, no. <laughs> and I got myself a Pennsylvania license. And back then you can get away with that sort of stuff. And then I proceeded to, uh, I traveled. I started traveling. I, I put all my stuff in a truck and I, I traveled. I went down to Atlanta, stayed with a friend down there. And then I went to New Orleans for the jazz festival and I stayed for two years. Uh, New Orleans was a place where people did not question your drinking. Very easy place to drink and very easy place to even drive if you're drinking because they don't have those hard curves. They have curves. They have those, those really gradual curves, you know, so you can kind of make a sloppy turn and no harm to the tire, you know, and, uh, and uh, down in New Orleans, I became uh, an offshore oil worker. I did that and I would go off and I would work for a week and I'd come home for a week and I'd go off for a week, 84 hour week. And uh, New Orleans was great. I just, I loved the city of New Orleans. Now the problem was that I got into a relationship and I had never really been in one before. And I really needed to get out of it. I didn't know why, but I needed to get out of it because I'm a runner, okay? You know, I, I didn't even tell this, this thing. When I was in fourth grade, you know, I would speak up a lot and they didn't like that. And my teacher, she would take my desk and put it outside, outside the classroom. There's probably a few people that they did that to here too. All right, and then she, she didn't get through to me that way. So I was in fourth grade. Her name was Mrs. Toller. And she would walk me down. Instead of me going to gym with the rest of the class, she would walk me over to sixth grade. They put me in the middle of the class, surrounded by kids two years older than me. And then the sixth grade teacher would ridicule me for 40 minutes. And it got me so upset. And I just like, and my, my heart would be like, because I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. And then it came. And then one day, finally, I'm walking to the sixth grade class and I make a run for it. And I ran outside and I grabbed onto a tree and I'm holding on the tree. I'm not coming down from this tree. I'm about two feet off the ground, but I'm not coming down off this tree. I mean, it's a big tree. I can only go so far. There's no limbs. And they, uh, they tried to negotiate me off this tree. And finally, they sent some, uh, some girls my age to come and talk me down off the tree. You know, and uh, it was traumatizing, you know. But this is what I do. See, it's flight or fight, and I fly. I fly. So here I am in New Orleans. I want to get out of the relationship. So I lie. And I say I'm losing my job, and I'm gotta, I got to go when I go back to New Jersey. I just ran back to New Jersey. And uh, my uncle, who was a cop, by the way, everybody in the family who's male is a cop. My uncle, who was a cop, somehow got my driving record fixed over the last two years or whatever. So they let me back into the state of New Jersey. So I get up there, and uh, now my, my drinking is really, really taking off. Really taking off. And... Uh, and I'm kind of like walking around this bar one night and I see this, uh, I, I'm, I want to, I want a date. 
I want to date with a woman. And I'm going to every woman in the bar, and I go up to them and I say, how do you like me so far? <laughs> with no preamble. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, one of them says, uh, I like it kind of nice, you know, and next thing you know, we got married, like, I think we were engaged in three months, right? There was a U-Haul involved. Um, anyone ever had one of those? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I get married. And, and I'm still having this bottom, this incredibly bad bottom. And my, my brother says, my brother says, why don't, you, uh, why don't you become a police officer? And I'm thinking about all the things I'm doing that police officers don't do. And there were a lot of things I, wasn't, I was doing. And I thought, well, you know, police officers don't do those things. So maybe if I become a police officer, I won't do those things. So I, uh, so in, uh, in June of 85, I joined the police department. And, uh, you know, I would go to the police academy every day, worried about a urine test. So, uh, you know, back then we didn't have Google. We just like, we kind of talked to each other and made stuff up. <laughs> and, uh... And so uh, I asked somebody, hey, what do you do here if you think you're going to get a urine test? Oh, just drink a half a bottle of vinegar. Yeah. And so I'm drinking a half a bottle of vinegar on my way to police academy every day, <laughs> anticipating that I'm going to get a urine test. And three months of police academy, I get no urine test, but a lot of heartburn, right? <laughs> and uh, so, so I, become, I become a police officer, and uh, I, I probably wasn't the best. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> All right. Um, I still have a lot to do with these cops. I mean, they still have, I still go back and I see them at old timers things. You know, there's this one incident where uh, I'm on a stakeout and I got hungry, so I ordered a pizza in my car. You know, in the unmarked car, I ordered a pizza. And, uh, and I thought that was okay, but for some reason they thought that was like ridiculous. You know, it occurred to me that I was hungry, so I got on the bag phone and ordered pizza, right? Remember bag phones? Yeah. So, and then when I go back to these police meetings today, you know, I always get that new guy that comes up. Did you really order a pizza pie while you're on stakeout? You know, and yeah, I did, you know. And of course, there's this one incident, you know, where I was driving to pick up my partner. And, you know, I'm medicated. I'm medicated every day. And I'm driving to pick this guy up and I, I see flames. There's a factory and it's on, it's on fire. The factory is on fire and I'm by myself. And I thought, that's a fire. And then I thought, I thought, you know, somebody should call the fire department. <laughs> and then I thought, I got a radio and I called the fire. It was like, that's how I acted. I did not act in such a way I was unsafe. I'm going to leave it at that. I was unsafe. And uh, the kicker for me at the police department was one day there was a bunch of guys all standing around this calendar. And they're all laughing and sniggering around this calendar. And I'm like, what's up with the calendar? They wrote on the calendar every excuse I ever came up with so I wouldn't have to work. Like every time I called in with an excuse, they put it on this calendar. And the shame just like hit me. The shame, I was just like, I mean, I'm like, uh, you know, 28 years old. I'm crying my eyes out on the way home from the police department, you know. While I was in the academy, I got married. And it was, uh, it was October of 1985. And if you guys remember back then, in the news 
was AIDS. That's all people talked about was AIDS. AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. And Rock Hudson died in October 1985. While I was in academy, they came up to me and they, they came up to all of us. They said, anyone that donates blood today gets half a day off. That's fine. I'll donate blood. You know, I donated a kidney for a week off, but I just, I, I want to get the day off. I'll, take, I'll, I'll donate the blood. So I donate the blood and I get a letter from North Jersey Blood Center says, uh, you have HIV. And the shame, I mean, once again, just, just this incredible shame that I felt. And I went to my doctor, and when I went to my doctor's office, I could tell that everybody that worked at the office knew what was coming into the office. Because we didn't, you know, nobody knew. Nobody knew how you get this thing. And uh, it was a very, very scary time. It was a very, very shameful time for me. And I walked into this place and, um, you know, my, uh, my doctor said to me, um, I got to draw blood and I haven't done this since medical school as he's preparing the syringe. And I said, uh, I'll take that from you. And I took it from him and I drew the blood. And I'll never forget the look of relief on his face when I did that. So um, I prepared myself to die. And for seven years, I was a police officer and I didn't die. I just, I just kept not dying. That's really what happened. I just kept not dying. And at the end of seven years, it all came crashing down. Stephanie says you should get sober by the bottom of the hour. <laughs> so it all came crashing down. And... Uh, so I went to uh, I went to treatment, and you know I was looking for a way out of treatment the whole time I was in treatment. And I came out and I was sober for about a hundred days, and then they asked me to speak, and uh, I really didn't want to speak. And just before I was to speak, uh, I went in for a hot dog, and that's what happened. So. Uh, I had kind of burned up all the goodwill in the family. My father wouldn't talk to me. My mother wouldn't talk to me. Uh, my brother wouldn't talk to me. My sister, on the other hand, has this loyalty gene. I mean, I can kill the governor and my sister would take me in. And she took me in. And I stayed with her for a couple of days. And, uh, I went, to, uh, I went to treatment and I didn't have anything. Uh, I had asked my wife to pack a bag for me. Uh, we didn't have a lot of good conversation at this time. As a matter of fact, like when I came to in the operating room, because I had the Narcan experience, I don't know if anyone ever had that, but I had the Narcan experience and um, when I came to, my, uh, my wife was there and she said, whatever you do from here, don't come home anymore. That's, that was her only word. So we get along good today though. <laughs> but I asked her to pack a bag for me. So she packed a bag for me, special. It had every item of clothes that didn't fit me I ever owned. <laughs> and I went to treatment. I mean, literally. And I went to treatment 
And uh, I spent uh, whatever it was, 35 days. Then they said I needed to go to a halfway house. And I'm, you know, I'm like, oh man, what is this? You know, I'm going to go to a halfway house in Reading. And, uh, you know, I just had nowhere to go. And I tried to talk my sister into taking me in permanent, like, and she wouldn't have it. She said, I think the halfway house is a good idea. <laughs> so I ended up in this halfway house. And I was in this house, I mean, and these, these guys, they were great. They were really wonderful. I mean, they were exactly what I needed at that time. They really held a mirror up to me. And what they did was, uh, we had one guy that was the bag man. We used to give him the money, you know, to pay the rent. And one day the bag man was gone. <laughs> <laughs> and so the landlord said, you got to get out of here. And so uh, at this point, I'm sober like three months. And my parents are just trusting me enough uh, to help me finance uh, a little apartment. I had this little apartment over on Eckert Street, the corner of Eckert and Clymer. Had this little apartment, and uh, and I stole the bed from the halfway house because <laughs> that's what we do. And uh, so I had a bed. I didn't have anything else. I think I had a like a plastic picnic chair or whatever. You know, that's that's what that's what it's like when we get sober, right? And uh, and I proceeded to live in this place. And uh, and what happened? Uh, what happened in that place? I was there for you know this place was like really grim. It was the bare light bulb. It was the kitchen that while you're washing the dishes, the wall was right behind you. Uh, it was the bed on the floor with no frame. It was the neighbor that if you sneezed, he would hit the ceiling. It was, I mean, it was, you can't make up what this apartment was like. I was there for a year. And by the time I left, I didn't want to leave. It was such, such so much stuff that happened there. So that was good, you know. So, um, so what happened was um, the first thing was is I, I hooked up with these guys, and they went to conferences. They would go to AA con and we would go, we would go to young young, yeah, young people conferences. I was young. <laughs> I qualified for young people's conference. I would go to I would go to young people's conferences. And uh, we would go to Massachusetts, and we go to Connecticut, and we go to New Jersey, and we go to Mar we go to all these different young people's conferences. And I was becoming what they call a conference junkie. I just really enjoyed going and, and learning about the different steps. I'd have different speakers. I'd hear different people's uh, you know comments on the steps, and I just it really helped. It really helped. And uh, and then one day I was uh, I was hanging out with Richie a lot, and. Uh, and Richie would, uh, Richie invited me over and I stayed at his house. I stayed with him in the Northeast for, uh, I guess we were together for about a year or so. I don't know. Where's, where Richie go? There he is. Yeah. And yeah, Richie's like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a lot longer. <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was new and I'd go to meetings and sometimes there'd be somebody at the podium and I was keeping my HIV status a secret. And sometimes there'd be somebody at the podium and they'd say something like, or they'd be just speaking, and they would say something like, I was told I should go get a test for HIV. HIV. And so I went to take this test 
and you know my higher power is really taking care of me because I'm negative and I would hear that and I probably heard somebody share that a half a dozen times I don't know I just know how I felt when I heard it I just know how I felt when I heard it I wanted to cry you know because uh, you know and it would come from a very it would come, like it would come from uh, oh your higher power took care of you and screwed me you know like, like that so I had this sponsor and uh, he was a postal worker <laughs> and his name was George and uh, I think he might have had a history gambling a little bit and uh, he would say to me uh, I, I don't like to impersonate that Philadelphia accent but I will he would say uh, you know maybe uh... <laughs> he would say you know maybe maybe your higher power isn't the one that's uh, dealing the cards out to you maybe your higher power is the one that helps you deal the hand you're dealt right and you know I really needed to hear that you know I really needed to hear that 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 this is something it's like life serves life will serve it up to you and uh, I need a connection with a higher power to deal with what life serves up to me that's that's what I got from George that was a big gift you know I mean uh, took me 20 years to figure out HIV probably allowed me to live but for those 20 years I needed to make sense of it you know So uh, in 1995, I went on a sober trip. I was going on these sober trips. I still go on these sober trips. 1995, January, I meet up with Stephanie. We're in Mexico. We're in Chichen Itza. Actually, we're down there in, uh, we're in Cancun, and we went on a, uh, you know, I didn't know her. I didn't know where to, you know, I didn't know what her name was. But we, uh, we went on an excursion from uh, Cancun to Chichen Itza. And uh, we just start walking together as though we were been walking together the whole day. We just started walking together. And uh, we've been walking together ever since. It's like 28 years. You know, that was 1995. So, uh, and we got married. I turned her into an honest woman. 95, uh, 98, 98, we got married. And uh, it's been a really good trip. It's been a very good trip. Thank you. So, uh, in 1995 also, we, uh, a couple guys jumped in my car. We had a 10-year-old Saab. You remember Saabs? I got lots of Saab stories. I was all over the country with Saabs. Several times. So, uh, a couple guys jumped in the car with me, and we drove to San Diego for the World Conference in 1995. And I'll tell you what. It was hysterical the whole time. We laughed and we cried. I mean, if you're new, and I know there's new people here, get in a car with some other new people and go to Vancouver the year after next, please. You know, I hope you take that, I hope you do that. Because the World Conference, it's heaven on earth if you're a new guy like me on fire. It really is. So, um, this is what uh, this is what life is like. I uh, I end up with a job, a real job. I love my job. I love the work I do. I had a couple of jobs. Like 
I kept changing jobs because I kept seeing better positions opening up. And I'm working now for a Canadian company that I just love. I just love these people. They're just, they're so good to me. They're so, they're so good. You know, I never thought that I would have a relationship with a work like I have today. It wasn't like that before. It really wasn't. I was always in trouble. And uh, today I have uh, this amazing, and, and, and the company I left before this one, I'm still friends with all of them. And the company I left before that, I'm still friends with all of them. I don't throw, <laughs> I don't burn bridges anymore. I always burn bridges. I always burned it down to the ground. So, uh, you know, this is what recovery is like. This is what recovery is like. So um, I, I went through these steps. I went through these steps and I had some real change. And one of the things I had to learn, you know, because I always took it, I always thought I was taking advantage of being alone. Anybody ever do that? It's like, nobody's watching, you know, nobody's watching. I could do what I want. Right. And that was my, that was my story. My story was, I always like acted out one way or the other while nobody was watching. And what I found over time is, well, first of all, I'm watching. And second of all, God is watching. Whatever you want to call that, whatever that force is, whatever that presence is, what I found is that when I stopped acting as though I can get away with something when I'm by myself, turns out I'm not by myself anymore. That's what happened. You know, I'm no longer alone. I can't get away with it anymore because I'm no longer alone. So, uh, my father, he and I had a very bruised relationship. Very, very, very bruised relationship. We couldn't uh, be in the same room with each other around the time I got sober, around the time that, you know, all this went down at the end. And over the next 19 years, my father and I had an incredible journey. And uh, we got closer and closer and... Uh, you know, we really, uh, we really loved each other. And at the end, you know, when he was going through a lot of his physical stuff, when he woke in a hospital, he'd find me with the white, with the washcloth wiping his forehead. You know, this is the guy that I couldn't be in the same room with. And now I find myself holding his hand. You know, how do you get from there to there? You know, my brother... Was, that was trouble. I mean, my brother didn't talk to me the first 15 years in sobriety. You know, he was a police officer. I was a police officer. I had, uh, you know, brought shame on the police department. Whatever you want to, whatever his belief system is, I don't know. But for 15 years, he didn't talk with me. And then shortly before my father died, uh, he started talking to me. And, uh, and then he made it clear. He told my mother, I believe that he wanted to go to Vietnam. He wanted to go back to Vietnam. My brother had been to Vietnam twice, uh, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. He wanted to go back to Vietnam. So I called him and I said, I'll go back to Vietnam with you. And so my brother and I went back to Vietnam. This was back in 2011. And uh, I got my brother upgraded on the flight, you know? I got him a bed to Asia, 16-hour flight. And... Uh, he gets on the bed and he looks up at me and he goes, we're even, you know, <laughs> so one amends down, right? 
<laughs> so you know, these are the these are the kind of things. These are the steps we take. You know, um, my friend Larry, who I talked about it a little bit about when I was in high school. He was my best man. I I was his best man. And you know, Larry and I. Uh, Larry got worse. You know, like Larry and I when we were kids we kind of jumped up, we jumped up to the cliff together with our drinking and our using. We got to the cliff and then I jumped off and Larry just stayed at the edge of the cliff and didn't come, didn't jump off with me, you know? And uh, I kind of resented that a little bit. You know, he, he stopped really being my friend because I wasn't like, uh, uh, I, I wasn't like a gentleman, you know, or whatever. And so he left New Jersey. He went to California, he went to Los Angeles and he had a couple kids. He married a woman and I would occasionally call him every couple of years or whatever. And then Larry's addiction starts to take off and he starts getting worse. And, um, it gets to the point where he gets thrown out of the house and then he ends up in this really horrible apartment in, uh, in the Valley of LA, in the Valley North of LA. And he, um, and I would go there on business trips and I would always look him up and I would, and we'd always go out and we'd have lunch and a foot massage. I'd always buy Larry lunch. He loved foot massages. We'd always go out and get lunch and a foot massage. And, um, and then one day I'm flying into Chicago and Larry, the phone rings and it's Larry and I answer it and it's not Larry. It's Larry's son who I barely know. And, uh, he says, uh, he says, Alan, I said, yeah. And he says, Larry's dead. And, uh, I said, oh, I'm so sorry, you know? And, uh, he says, we're, we're having the Shiva. It's a Jewish thing. Larry's parents, Larry's parents were survivors at Auschwitz, both of them. And the household was kind of crazy. I mean, I was raised in that household too. And so Larry's, uh, Larry's household was kind of crazy, but, uh, he's sitting, we're sitting Shiva for for my dad. And, uh, if you'd like to come, that would be great. And here I am, I'm in Chicago. It's, it's a uh, Monday night I'm flying into Chicago and the last day of the Shiva is going to be Sunday. And, and I remembered not going to Larry's father's Shiva. And I remembered not going to Larry's mother's Shiva. And I, so I booked the flight to Los Angeles from Chicago. And uh, so I get into Chicago and I, I have friends there and I'm, I'm hanging out with and stuff. And, uh, and it's Sunday morning and I don't know what to bring to the Shiva. So, uh, so I had a sponsee that I can consult. He's right over there. And I said, uh, Alan, what do I bring to the Shiva? <laughs> and Alan says, bring cookies. So it's Sunday morning. It's like 6.30 in the morning. I find this Jewish bakery. And I buy a plate of cookies as big as a manhole cover. Right? Because that's the only... They didn't have a lot of sizes, right? They just they didn't have like a thing they bring like this. They had a thing you bring like this. And I get this manhole cover. <laughs> And I put it in the trunk of my rental car. And I get to West Hollywood where the Shiva is. And I open the trunk 
and I'm getting these cookies, this big heavy thing of cookies, and I'm gonna have to like balance it and hit the doorbell, and I've never been in this house before. And I'm like, what am I doing in Los Angeles on a Sunday morning at seven o'clock in the morning? This is not a good idea. That's all I can think. And I ring the doorbell and uh, Larry's two sons and daughter uh, invite me up to the, uh, the residence, right? And they have the torn garments and the whole thing. And, and uh, so for three hours, it turns out Larry had never been very forthcoming about being raised in New Jersey and what that was like. And for three hours, these kids are pinging me with questions about their father growing up in, in New Jersey. And I'm telling them the story of Larry, the one that he wouldn't tell somewhat redacted <laughs> and uh but i got it across and you know sometimes miracles happen in this fellowship and months later you say hmm that was a miracle you know you don't know at the time but this one was a miracle while it was happening i knew why i was there i knew this was a miracle that i got to do this for my friend and i got to do it for them you know, I got to be of service. And that's just awesome. So, you know, it's like, I, I love the 11th promise. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. Stephanie and I, two months ago, were over at the Italian restaurant here in Reading. My son at the time wants to talk to us over dinner. And he, uh, so between appetizer and the main course, uh, he lets us know that he's trans. And I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me. I didn't say a word. And then Stephanie said, what do you need from us to support you? And I'm like, perfect. I handled it right. I married the right woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just shut up, you know? So, um, so we, we I, I support him no matter what. I support my son no matter what, you know? And it wasn't even hard. It wasn't even difficult. It was easy, you know? I just want him to be happy. That's all I ever wanted for him, you know? And I'm sorry that he had to go through a long period of time where things didn't jive for him his outside and his inside. I'm sorry for that, you know? And apparently I handled it okay because uh, he went out of his way to say, boy, you did a lot better than mom, you know? <laughs> I hope she can find peace too. I really do hope she can find peace also. So um, I have a daily program. I get up in the morning, you know, and... Uh, before any resentments can form, I sit down and I meditate. I meditate every day. And, uh, you know, when I meditate, uh, all of that stuff is gone. And when I say all that stuff, you know, what I do, who I am, the fact that I'm male, white, living in Reading, Pennsylvania, HIV positive, all that stuff it goes away. In, uh, 
in May, I went to Vietnam and Cambodia. I went to these temples in Cambodia. It was out, amazing, just an amazing thing. My last day, I was in Hanoi, Vietnam, and I uh, decided to do one of these uh, man versus food things. And the food won. And I was very, very, very sick. And so on May 1, I went to the doctor because it was a regular call to the doctor and she felt my neck and she felt the lump and I thought, I'm probably fighting off whatever it is I ate in Vietnam. And uh, she says, um, I want you to get a, a scan. I want you to get a scan of your neck. So I'm like, oh, you pain in the, you know, and, I, and so I went and got a, a scan and it, a mass was detected. This is just a few weeks ago. And then I went to the, I went to the, uh, the ENT and he put this thing up my nose and down my throat and he says, you have cancer. And um, Stephanie and I were in the room there and we were both crying. And uh, the only thing I could say was, why not me? Because my initial thought was, why me? And I realized, why not me? And uh, I have been so protected by the people I love over the last two months. It's like, this is okay. This is like really okay. With that said, I mean, I have to go through some treatment. The prognosis is very good, but I'm, um, most of the time I'm not afraid. Most of the time, I'm, I mean, like, 51% of the time, I'm not afraid. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I, I can, you know, so, like, you know, I have to meditate every day. I don't meditate to make my life better. I meditate to make my life possible. When I meditate, um... It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's like so quiet because it's excruciating sometimes to think. And it's so important that I spend some time every day not doing that. And this is why I meditate every day. And um, I have to be consciously contact, I have to have conscious contact in my waking time as well. And I have to be aware of my tendency to go towards dark. And I have to choose light almost constantly. I mean, it really is like that for me now. It's like I have to choose light all the time. So, um, so anyway, if you're new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's where you are. And if you're new and you think there's something that you know about that no one else knows about and we wouldn't want you to be in the room you're in the right place you know when I got to uh, my home group at that time was a men's meeting and I'd be in the men's meeting and I remember that uh, I would think to myself if they knew I had HIV they'd want me out of here and uh and I thought, I'm not as good as anybody in this room. And with the same mind, I would listen to what they were sharing. 
and I knew the criminal statute they were guilty of. <laughs> and I knew I was better than everybody in the room. With the same mind. And the thing is, is that I can think I'm less than everybody in the room. Or I can think I'm better than... But the, the thing is, they have something in common. They separate me from you. That's what they do. Both of those things separate me from you. You know? And uh, I love Sandy Beach. And by the way, Sandy Beach was in this building. If anyone ever listens to the old-timer speakers, Sandy Beach, Sandy Beach was in this building. And incidentally, this room was my very first AA meeting. Yeah, I got here. They had the desks, you know, the ones that you write on with the right-handed desks, the left-handed desks. They were in this room. I sat in this room. There was a guy here from the Reading Eagle. I thought, maybe he'll like my story. You know, it's my br- a, a brand new meeting. I mean, the first time I ever went to a meeting was right here. So, um, you know, what I wanted to say there was I needed to become a member. I needed to become a member because I was always separating myself from you. God is either everything or is nothing. If God is everything, he's you, he's the desk, he's the clock, he's the walls, he's the paint, and somehow I think he's not me. It's everything. Everything, all of us. No exceptions. You know, I sat in that room. I got sober on Valentine's Day, 1992. And at the end of March, at the end of March, they read the third tradition. And they said, the only requirement is the desire to stop drinking. And I have a legal mind. And I said, they can't throw me out. And I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that day because I knew that I was a member. And I hope you are, I hope you are a member. I hope you become a member if you're new. And... Uh, that's what I needed. It turns out this newcomer needed the third tradition. We don't know what the new guy needs to hear. Anyway, that's all I got. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. You can also find a link for this in the description below. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.